Hi everybody, Cora here. Welcome back to Rev on Air, the Rev on Ver podcast, a place for sustainable storytelling with founders, activists, creatives, and phenomenal individuals who are paving the way for a more conscious future for us all. Today, I am so excited to be speaking with the incredible chef and visionary in the farm-to-table space, Dan Barber of Blue Hill. But before we get into the episode, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Dirty. The Rev team has been mushroom-obsessed for a long time, and Dirty creates mushroom-infused wellness products that are thoughtfully formulated for the best result. We are such a busy team here and always looking for the healthiest way to keep our energy levels naturally high throughout the day without the usual jitters you get from too many cups of coffee. We were so thrilled to discover Dirty's Mushroom Coffee, which gives you energy without any crashes, whilst also supporting your immune system, boosting focus, and improving your sleep. For a limited time, our listeners get an exclusive 10% offer. Just head to Dirty.com, spelt D-I-R-T-E-A.com, and use the code R-E-V-10 to get 10% off your first order. So now on to today's incredible guest, who is Dan Barber, the chef of Blue Hill, a restaurant in Manhattan's West Village, and Blue Hill at Stone Barns and Center for Food and Agriculture. His opinions on food and agricultural policy have appeared in publications like the New York Times, making the case for a more sustainable food system and using taste as the focal point. Barber has received multiple James Beard awards, including best chef in New York City and the country's outstanding chef. He was also named one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. Drawing on the wisdom and experience of chefs, farmers, and seed breeders around the world, Barber proposes a new definition for ethical and delicious eating and growing. Barber charts a bright path forward for eaters and chefs alike, daring everyone to imagine a future for our national cuisine that is as sustainable as it is delicious. Dan and I talk about the need to change our very consolidated seed system, how important it is to regenerate the soil, and the power of food to change our minds and our habits. This is a beautiful conversation that I can't wait to share it with you all. Now over to my time spent with Dan at the incredible location of Blue Hill at Stone Barns. So Dan, thank you so much for taking the time. And it's very nice. You are actually my first in-person interview since the pandemic. So it's really nice to be with you here um, in this beautiful location. And I always kind of like to start actually just at the beginning and, and sort of ask my guests, you know, how your love of nature or food or agriculture, you know, the industry you're in now, you know, where you think that was sort of initially born from, was it in your childhood? Did it evolve in time for you? You know, where does this come from, this like spark to, to preserve and engage with nature? I think it was because I was engaging with nature as a, as a kid on Blue Hill Farm, which is a farm in Western Massachusetts, that my grandmother started uh, in the 1950s. And my responsibility, my job, my love was to uh, care for the farm uh, growing up. And uh, the farm was really for beef cattle uh, mm-hmm. and grazing. Uh, and the main job was cutting hay for storing uh, food for the winter. Uh, but it was, you know, it was, it was work that was about preserving open space and beauty and responsibility. And I wasn't, my grandmother wasn't a farmer. She just wanted, she actually just wanted cows dotting the landscape uh, yeah. for her guests when she was a, she was a big in the community in the Berkshires. She was an artist and a, and a, a very into the arts and, 
she was entertaining. And so the, the idea, the picture as it's, it, it is situated on, on an on iconic looking Western Massachusetts uh, farm, pasture farm that is beautiful. So uh, yeah, so that, that inculcated something in me uh, with a connection to open space and beauty and, and responsibility. And so then the food element, when did you start wanting to be a chef? You know, what, what drew you into this world of wanting to, to cook? Well, my mother died when I was very young. I think that had something to do with it. I, I was cooking for myself a lot. Mm. And uh, I think, you know, I, I was always drawn to food because I was surrounded by a family that loved food. Mm-hmm. And... I was looking for something in college to earn a little bit of money and I started cooking and then after college since I knew how to cook a little bit I just followed that until and here I am. Okay. Here's <laughs> the chronology. Okay. So then the inception of Blue Hill, you know, as we know it. So, you know, we're sitting here today. There is Blue Hill in New York City. There's yeah. now Blue Hill here. So tell us how tell us how this all kicked off because Blue, Blue Hill New York City started in 2000 with okay. my brother as my business partner and his wife Lorene um, as, as the designer uh, for a small restaurant that connected our love of Blue Hill Farm mm-hmm. and the idea that a restaurant in the middle of Manhattan could support those kinds of small uh, uh, organic mostly uh, farms that were producing very delicious food. The, the farm was transitioned from beef cattle to a dairy farm, which okay. is actually confusingly, hopefully instructively, <laughs> was a dairy farm when my grandmother got it. She she stopped the dairying and went to beef cattle because it was just easy. There was no management. It was, it was very little management comparatively. We returned it to dairy okay. in part because we were, I was looking for a source of dairy for the restaurant and the menu. Um, and in part because that's what the land really wants it to be. Okay, so you so you're you're bringing all this food from Blue Hill Farm well, every day well, to the restaurant. Well, like was well, that the? It was it was an example of of a farm that we wanted to support. And so yes, farm is Blue Hill Farm is now supplying in the dairy world and and other animals. Uh, it supplies a lot uh, for us during the year, but. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, it was more of an idea than it was actual supply um, and in the beginning. Okay. So this is back in 2000, and I love hearing about how, like, how, like, culture pushes things forward or circumstances pushes things forward. So what, what started making this a reality from going, you know, this inception of, of Blue Hill is great. We love the idea of all farm to table, all organic, to actually being able to sustain a restaurant and start really working with farmers and really, you know, only having that kind of food. Cause I feel like a lot of people in theory are like, Oh yeah, that's great. We could do like 20% that and then 80% the rest. So like, yeah. how did it start to, how did you start to push the needle forward? Like for yourself? No menus is my answer. Is really? Like, yeah. I mean, we don't have to live within a paradigm that, uh, gets you to what you said, the 20% calculation. You know, we we offer what we offer, and there are no choices. Uh, there's a lot of diversity mm-hmm. within the we here where you're sitting at Blue Hill Stone Barns, which opened four years after Blue Hill New York. There, there literally are no menus, and there's a different menu, a different playlist for every table. 
So when you sit down, the captain is interviewing you essentially and getting a sense of who you are, what you like, what's the nature of the occasion. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the meal could go anywhere from 10 courses to 40 courses. Uh, You could have you know, lamb loin or lamb brain, as we were just talking before I came in here. <laughs> we were talking about this today. So it depends on what the nature of the table is. And so that allows us to do something beyond farm to table, which is which is nose to tail of the farm, actually. Not just nose, you've heard of nose tail of the mm-hmm. animal. This is extensive to the farm. And so we, this farm and other farms that rely on us uh, for that kind of patronage and mm-hmm. support. And also interesting, so back in 2000, can you tell us a little bit about what, you know, I I feel like saying like the sustainable food space is so broad, but what made you start thinking about, I don't know, the impact on the, like, did you start thinking about the impact on the earth straight out of the beginning? Were you thinking like, you know, this is a very extractive process, most restaurants, we have to give back. Were you thinking about it? in a wider sense, were you thinking about waste right from the beginning or like how is things like, you know, where have there been like touch points that really started to get you? Uh, the, the probably right from the get go is like, and this is hard to explain because you're a writer or an, you know, and, and a journalist and you, you have a sort of approach that mm-hmm. I, you don't know where it comes from. I'm a, I'm a chef. I don't know where my approach comes from. I know that I don't like complicated plates of food. Actually, I'll even, I'll even skewer that. I've had many plates of food that are very complicated in the hands of really brilliant chefs that I just, just wow and delicious. And but I'm not that guy, you know. Yeah. I'm just I'm 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 not that guy. I'm I'm a simple guy. I'm three ingredients. Anything more than that, I can start to get a little nervous, a little <laughs> sweaty. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just and, and and I just recognized in that if I did anything right, I recognized that early on was was important to acknowledge Mm. and so if you're acknowledging that then you're acknowledging a lot of things actually one of them being you better make sure that the three ingredients on the plate are really good because you're not hiding a lot yeah Um, that does that doesn't mean a lot technique is not important technique is paramount uh i you know and that's why i was trained so well because the technique is is everything on the other hand if you're using bad product with good technique, you, you, you're only going so far. Well, exactly. And so the product is what like the crux of this conversation really is about. And when I was sort of preparing to speak to you, I watched your, um, your chef's table episode and I, you really got me thinking at a point where you, you mentioned basically how like a lot of the best cuisines around the world came out of need and peasant food and you know using what was available and using all of it but in america we've done something very unique in that we've evolved to really only use very certain vegetables very certain parts of meat very certain dairy products so what can you speak a little bit about for the people that haven't watched that episode which they should but can you speak a little bit to that ideology of how america kind of evolved to have a have a cuisine that's very much, you know, unsustainable at its core, I'd argue. Yeah, well, it's very rich um, yeah. because we're a very young country. We're not dealing with thousands of years of soil exhaustion, which is what, uh, you know, is at play when you create decisions in the field to bring fertility to soil, to bring the next crop. Mm-hmm. And so when you're, when you're forced into that, and by forced into it, it means you can't move west. 
you can't just drop what you're doing and then move to for, for you know virgin ground. Mm-hmm. Virgin ground has a ton of fertility. Yeah, too much fertility. You know, and you can live off that for a long time. And then when that gets exhausted, you can move on. If you're America, mm. that that is the story of America since uh, the 1700s. Uh, and in about 1960s to 70s, we you stopped because that you're in California and you're, you're mining the resources, sunlight, which is free, but the water's not free, and uh, soil fertility is not free. Yeah, and that's where that's kind of that's that's the short history of the United States. And so, when you have a, when you when you have that, when you have the the English come over, uh, what what you had was a group of people who uh, were terrible farmers. That's that's not an um, indictment. I, I, I that's the truth from what I, I that was. I, I wrote a book called The Third Plate, which which is in that research. I was just amazed. I didn't understand that. I was. I was in like the Jeffersonian, like yeoman farm. Like we were, we were a country actually built on farmers. Mm-hmm. We were not. We were a country built on people who didn't own farmland. That's why they came, right? <laughs> yes. It's like, and nobody knew how to do anything. And obviously some very good work was done, but it was done in, at least east of the Mississippi, with a lot of water, a lot of temperate climate, and, and, and virgin soil. And so you put a seed in the ground and you had the Garden of Eden, kind of, um, yeah, that I think skewers a lot of people's hard work uh, to tame the land mm. and restructure it. Mm-hmm. In some ways, beautifully, we're looking out a window that was sculpted by dairy cows. Uh, you know, in fact, the whole Hudson Valley was, uh, in some ways, uh, sheep and dairy. Uh, that's what sh- sculpted this landscape and gave us the iconic views that we have. And um, but but we were living high on the hog because there was no. There was no, there was so much fertility uh, once the land was tamed and you were in real cultivation agriculture that you didn't need to do the complex negotiations that peasant farmers throughout the world do mm-hmm. to maintain uh, food. Yeah. That, and and that's, that's what cuisine comes out of, actually, is that desperate attempt to figure out how, what, where the next crop, how are you going to get the next crop? That's fascinating. I find that you know, reality and how, it, how depending on where you are, which is ecosystem or environment, and the interplay of that ecosystem environment with culture, there is no difference. There is no difference. These are decisions that the culture is making based on what the ecology and the environment is telling you. And that's where distinct cuisines come from. It's, it's so, so delicious and interesting. What did we have? We had we didn't have anything. We weren't forced into negotiations. You know, if you those negotiations, just to put a pin on it, it's like if you're in the Western world, wheat is your king crop. Mm-hmm. To grow wheat in the West, you need a bunch of other crops that make it work. Um, if you're in uh, if you're in you know, Europe, it's it's like barley. If you're in Eastern Europe, it's buckwheat. Uh, you know, these are crops that, and legumes in Italy and France, I mean, they, they are such a part of everything because they're leguminous and you need them. So legumes, rotation crops, um, soil supporting crops like, like buckwheat, disease preventing crops, all are in the mix so that you can have your wheat. 
in the global south, corn is the king crop. Mm-hmm. So there's another set of crops, whether it's, you know, legumes, you know, in, in Mexico, you know, beans, beans and rice. You know, it's like, that's it. Those are combinations that have been worked out over time to essentially get you the corn, but you're eating the beans, but you're not, you're not doing it because, I, because someone said to you, if you want your corn, you better eat your beans. It's because it became part of the template. And same, like Asia, rice would be, you know, if you look at Japan, you would look at, at barley and buckwheat, buckwheat. But, mm. you, but, you know, to get your rice crop, you're eating buckwheat, but you're planting buckwheat, but you're, you're, you're eating it in the culture, eating rice twice a day, and you're eating soba a couple of times a week. So it's not a, it's not a finger-wagging thing where you have to eat this to be sustainable. It's mm. because it's so delicious and it's part of the imprint of what of cuisine and uh, and who you are as a mm. right but american that n- nothing when when in you know in the south when when soils collapsed in the late 1700s and early 1800s uh the the farm farmers if you didn't own a plantation you dropped your plow and you went west and that, and that and plowed up the prairie yeah and the prairie is where we get most of our grains from today uh, yeah. still uh and then, and then when that those that started to collapse, there was a march continuing west, and you get to California, and here we are. So, my, so we didn't have we weren't forced into those tough tough negotiations that produce real deliciousness. I will say with an asterisk that for those plantation owners that were left behind in the South, it is interesting and tragic that enslaved West Africans were left to figure out how you bring back soil fertility. And what came out of that, interestingly, is Southern cuisine. Uh, you know, it, it, is, it is cow peas, and it is collard greens that could grow in salinated soil to desalinate soils that were exhausted and depleted from tobacco and cotton and rice. Um, and it's through that ingenuity that really came out of West African tradition both seed itself and also rotation tradition that you get what I would argue is the greatest cuisine and the only cuisine, the only cuisine of the United States. California, Alice Waters is coming later, so I wouldn't say this past this conversation, but I don't know what California cuisine is. Yeah. California cuisine is a bunch of products that are are based on uh, uh, soil fertility, sunlight, free water. Used to be free water. That's That's not a cuisine. That's not a pattern of eating, and that's not a negotiation with a landscape. Southern cuisine is, is, it's rich, and it's really delicious, and it's why it's preserved. It's why we're still talking about it today. But it's interesting. I had um, Leah Penniman on from Soulfire Farm, and, you know, well, and this is the one of the problems facing America. You know, she brought this up as well, but she was like, so our ancestors taught regenerative agriculture before it was actually even a thing, yet... It was something like 1% of the farmers in America or the farms in America are black owned, you know? And so it's like, I think that number is increasing, but you know, we lost a ton of wisdom to give over to what you were sort of talking about, which I guess would be like monocropping, which has been what's taken over is just like, let's use pesticides to try and grow as much as one crop as we can. And it seems to me, I know you come from the angle of flavor, but with like such depleted soils and such bad seeds and such bad use of pesticides and fertilizers, we're just producing crap kind of, you know, like in, in like, it seems like the biggest amount of farming going on in America 
is just the production of ingredients that aren't very good for us or good for the soil, good for the environment, arguably. Like, would you kind of say that that's what you have been working on highlighting? I would say I've been working on highlighting. I wouldn't say I've done a very good job of it. (laughs) You don't think you have? Well, we're 20 years into this project at Stone Barns, which highlights what you were talking about, which is essentially a farm-to-table model. It's like, let's opt out of that monoculture system and let's let's dive into a local, regional, diverse system mm-hmm. that's super delicious. Um, but what's happened in 20 years? As that, as that idea that I just said and you just said, that's become the most exciting social movement in America for the last 20 or 30 years. No? I mm-hmm. mean, what else is there? There's that. Yeah. And, uh, and yet, big food's only gotten bigger. Yeah. Um, farm to table, there's more, you, your husband just said, there's farmer's markets in London, it's just the exact, they have exploded, it's the same thing in America, they've increased 4,000%. There's some figure I saw the other day, I was like, wow, man. And yet, more people are eating from a big food, uh, multinational corporation than ever before. Where do you think those numbers come from then? So are we just diverging in terms of like the people that want to eat organically are just going more and more that way and then the people, you know, that no, don't are... are fortunately, I wish it was that easy because people are eating organically are actually more and more eating off of large-scale monoculture organic, organic farms that are owned by some multinational corporation. <laughs> yeah. And no, can, it's weird. I know. It's and weird. I actually saw you did an Instagram post on this like that was like... The different, like the variations on organic, right? Because, like, I guess the US, like, we've got definitions of what organic means, but that's not necessarily the organic that you're talking about. And, like, could you sort or of. Or that everyone thinks they're talking about. Yeah, well, it can just me. <laughs> I mean, so, organic, the definition of it is organism. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. It's not just about whether you put a pesticide or a fertilizer on it. It's, it's what's your, your soil fertility? Where is it coming from? Uh, who's growing it? Mm-hmm. What's the community that's growing? How's it getting to you? What are you eating? How are you eating it? That's all part of the organic movement is to think about the wholeness and the connections. Yeah. We have determined that pesticides and fertilizers are the determining factor. That was, that's, a, that's a breach of the definition, actually. Yeah. Um, and one that corporate America has taken very good advantage of because it's growing at 10% for the last 20 years, actually, it has. From 8 to 12%, organic agriculture has grown for the last 20 years. Yeah. And it's interesting. We um, we had to stop at a... We have a Tesla, and we had to stop at the supercharger in Lee, Massachusetts. And we, we pulled in, and it was a... Very close to Blue Hill Farm, by the way. The, yes. And so it was um, some, like a Y, something Y. It was a, y. There we go. It was a supermarket. Well. Yeah. yeah. And so we had, I don't know, like 30 minutes to spare, and we went in. And I went to the produce section, and there were a ton of organic options. But I was looking at it, and I was like, this isn't right. Like... Pla- there were peppers individually shrimp like right, shrink ripped in plastic. Yeah. There was, and and big big peppers. You know, just like everything. So it's funny you bring up that example because big Y, you know, weirdly, is a is a, a an example. They're not a huge. I don't know if anyone would even know of them. They're not enormous. Out of no, I never I'd mass. never seen them. Yeah, no, but but uh, they have a large footprint in their stores. It's a big big store. It's yeah, like a super center kind of thing, and they actually support regional local farmers in an extraordinary way. Really? Yeah, you wouldn't think that. Because you went when this week? Like two, yesterday. It's still winter in yeah. Western Mass. You know, there's nothing. Yeah. Still, uh, there's about to be. 
And if you go back in another two months, you'd probably see you know, a, a small, but, but by standards of a, of a super center place like that, very big um, support of regional farmers. The problem is people expect to go to a supermarket and get all the things that you just mentioned to 365 days a year. So yeah. it's not, is it the fault of the big whys of the world? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So uh, who, I would say no. I would say, you know, we, we have some, we have some dirt in our hands here or some blood on our hands, you know, as consumers. Yeah. I mean, it's just our expectation is just bananas. Yeah. And do you think, and that is, and we talk about it. So I feel like I'm like a broken record on this podcast, but I think it can't be said enough that like, you know, for people feeling overwhelmed by like the climate crisis or the biodiversity crisis or any of the crises, it's like you eat three times a day. Like those are three yeah. decisions you're making every day yeah, that you could point. be. I'm going to turn off this music. This, this should not, I'm sorry. No, okay. Recording like, stopped. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, voting three times with your fork is like, uh, I think Michael Collins talked about that over the years. Recording in progress. Years is that, uh, is that, um, is that, that, that doesn't work anymore. You know, it, it, what doesn't work anymore? The power of individual eating. I mean, it, it has some sway, but, but in the last 20 years, Corporate America has become too strong uh, and too concentrated, and you you can't opt out of it. Actually, yeah, you know, that's why farm to table model is not a model that we can hang our hats on. Right, there's we need more. to really think in political terms and in uh, in ways that uh, break up uh, concentration of power. Mm-hmm. And that's why I go to seed so quickly because I think if you're going to start somewhere, you're going to start there. Well, and that's perfect because that was my next question because you've actually started a seed company, which we can talk about. But before we get into that, just like the monocropping that's happened, you know, and the corporatization of so many things, I don't think a lot of people ever think about seeds, you know, the very the very inception of our food. So so what's happened? Why Why are seeds an issue that we need to know about? I have this operating uh, conceit theory that I'm, I go with very strong, which is the reason we have the monocropping and the tens of thousands of acres of military-like precision and whatever we grow is, is not because some corporate somebody is, is dictating that it be grown that way, although they are doing that. And it's not because somebody wants peppers shrink wrap 365 days a year although they're doing that too Mm -hmm. everybody's doing it but nobody's guilty so i'm going to the source of what allows all of it to happen seed right yeah seed it it, it, without the seed you can't do any of that stuff uh so that's the that if we don't attack seed or we don't disrupt seed Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you disrupt everything it means that you have a chance 
to have an alternate vision of the future of food. That's why I go to seed so quickly. And just to wind it back a teeny bit, for those who might not understand kind of how seeds have become so problematic, why are they so problematic? The way the structure is now. Right, because four companies control 65% of our food supply. Four. Four. 20 years ago, it was nine, which wasn't great. No. (laughs) Uh, 40 years ago, you know, it was more like uh, 50 uh, to 100. And 100 years ago, it was zero. There were now seed companies. The first seed companies were in the early 1900s. Right. Literally first seed companies. So we've gone from the idea of seed ownership um, being zero to today where there's four, 65% of the global, not U.S., global seed supply. So another way of saying global seed supply is the future of food is in the hands of four companies. That's alarming. I'll layer on another alarm for you. All four of those companies are owned by chemical companies. They're not seed companies. Yeah. The chemical companies bought the seed companies. So now go figure. If you're a if you're a chemical company and you want to produce a seed, exactly what what impetus do you have to create a seed that's super resilient to a disease, a fungal disease or a pest. Like what, if you're not making money on the seed, which you don't, I, I, I'm, I've owned a seed company now, I can tell you they don't make money on seeds. Yeah. You're making money on the intervention. Mm. So you, you, are, you, are, you are double dealing. You're, you're getting the sale of the seed. It's sort of like Amazon got you interested through books, you know, they got into your house. Um, the seed companies get into your farm and then for it to work, you need a lot of support. And that's, that's the intervention. Uh, there's a lot of other players in that. You know, there's, there's what I said. There's the, there's the farmers who are conspiring. There's the corporations conspiring. There's governments that are... I mean, it's all so crooked. Yeah. But none of it runs unless you have the genetics that can, can roll like that. And, and that's, a, that's, a, you know, that's a, a huge technological advance. It's not a small thing. It's, it wasn't possible not that long ago. You know, you couldn't do this kind of thing. But, so, so they, you know, something to be said for that. It, it is. It's a lot of food. Well, it's interesting. Like, I had a conversation with somebody about this. Like, the G, you know, there's, like, the people that are so anti-GMO, but they kind of don't even understand. I don't know anyone that understands all the nuances of what GMO means in, like, today's world. Because it's, like, I know that, for instance, you guys like to, you know, maybe breed new types of seeds and stuff like that. Like, is that, like, modifying it? You know what I mean? Like, in terms of how people should be thinking about playing with seeds and playing with the future of food. Is there a good space for human intervention or are we really needing to get it back to just letting nature evolve organically? Well, if we go back 10,000 years, which is where we went from wild food to cultivated food, Mm -hmm. we went to cultivated food because we saw something when we were rooting around for dinner that we liked and we wanted to, get it again okay probably because it was very delicious probably. wheat was was one of the first that caught our eye okay um so we planted we took from the wild and we domesticated it essentially by taking the variety we liked and select it and keep planting it over and over again and then it becomes a seed that you 
you know, that you cultivate. Okay. So that's manipulation. So from the from this day from minute number one of agriculture, ten thousand years ago or so, that's what we did. We manipulated seeds. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing wrong with manipulating seeds, and, or else we wouldn't we wouldn't we would all be hunter gatherers and. I don't have a problem with hunter-gatherers, but that's not possible. Yeah. So you're manipulating seed. No question about it. And then somewhere along the line, we took a, a really great seed that we loved and another great seed that we loved. We put them together. We, we like, you know, we mented the thing and mm-hmm. we, we created an offspring. And that's called a hybrid. That's a big manipulation. That's most of the food we eat today. It's two parent lines that we like characteristics from this wheat because it's it's um it grows nice and tall and we like this because it has a beautiful plump seed head that we make into nice flowers so we put them together and we get both characteristics if we select from there that's also um manipulative manipulative yeah um i'm not putting any i'm just saying like I don't think you could have a problem with that. I don't think you can. I mean, I don't know. There's some purists out there, but those purists want to live, you know, out out in in the forest. And, and but that's not what we're talking. About. We're talking about feeding people, and there's nothing wrong with, I don't think, um, manipulating genetics for our environments mm-hmm. and for our tastes. We've been doing it for ten thousand years, if not more. So, the issue of where this gets problematic, I think is when you start to do things that nature couldn't do on its own. So nature could take those two wheat lines I was talking about it, and it could marry them together. Mm-hmm. The wind blows in the right direction, you got it. Uh, but we're doing it because we want it to happen, and we're being focused and intentional about it. Mm-hmm. The problem is when you do things with seeds that nature could never do, one of them would be you take a... Um, gene from a um, from a pig's heart and insert it into wheat. You know that those kinds of things usually they are done because uh, you're looking for genes that have certain characteristics uh, that come from other species. Mm-hmm. Whether it's corn into wheat or it's a wild plant that has a certain kind of bacteria that you want in the plant that you're 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 creating. Uh, and because it gives you a, a resistance to a, a, a pest. Got it. Yeah. And that, that is where G, that's what GMO is. That's genetically modifying the organism. And these big, so like Monsanto, I'm assuming, is one of the companies. They, are they, they're, I mean, there's so many companies. Yes, Monsanto is the big ugly bear because they're, they're big and they do it a lot. Yeah. They, but like what do they do, for instance? Because so like, are they modifying seeds in order to make them need pesticides like is this like yes, the reciprocity yes. sure, you're sure. talking right, about exactly yes that's okay. exactly what they're doing they are they are creating a new variety of corn mm-hmm. uh, that has genetic traits that allow for really noxious chemicals to be sprayed right on right on the corn plant so corn plants growing mm-hmm. and you spray the cocktail suite of pesticides and fungicides and herbicides that Monsanto have made yes well that that Bayer has made right. which owns Monsanto yeah right. because it gets more and more corporate as you go up it gets more and more chemicals you go mm-hmm. up in the seed world anyway um, the corn plant doesn't die and everything around it dies right 
that yeah. leads to a lot more corn. <laughs> exactly. And a lot less biodiversity. Yes. Yes. A lot less biodiversity, a lot less corn genetics out there. You're narrowing the corn genetics to fit a, a particular traits. The problem, there's so many problems with that. There's the corporate ownership of that. There's the noxious use of chemicals. The real problem uh, is that it doesn't work after a while because nature fights it by creating a resistance to the chemicals. And, and therefore, the chemicals need to change and therefore your GMO corn needs to change to have the gene that allows it to change. Right. So now if you're a farmer and you're in this game, you gotta then buy the new product. Right. Otherwise your your field is filled with weeds that have become trees. I mean, they're just like, it's like really, and it's happening in so many different And ways. it's so sad. I mean, we, right before we met, like left London, you know, Jamie, one of his friends was, you know, big landowner in the UK monocropped everything they grew like one thing and I think maybe maybe two and he was really freaking out he was taking it over from his father and he was like we're doing everything we're tilling we're spraying we're putting the seeds it's just not producing the yields and like we brought up the idea of like regenerative agriculture and diversifying and thinking about it differently and he just wasn't having it like he was like that doesn't work you can't make money the upfront investment is too much. We've already dumped millions into this farm. Right. So like, is there a way for us to get out of well, this that's cycle? that's a good example of, of what the problem is. You're, you're way in, man, way in. The, the nice part is there's a nice market for organic now where there wasn't yeah. before. But, he, but his point is exactly right. It's like, it's, I think of everything he said, the truth is upfront cost is because you have to wait uh, many years and you have to put in a lot of money and you can't just turn the soil back on. All that microbiology is gone yep. from all those chemicals. You know? so, so you turn the chemical spigot off and then you try and grow something and it's like growing in a substrate. It's like, <laughs> it's like what? You know, it, there's nothing there. Um, so it takes a long time. And that's, that's the problem. So you really need government support. Right. Um, to give people time, like the, the couple of few time. years probably yeah. to rebuild topsoil and do all of this stuff. It, 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 that's happened over and over again. There's so many examples of that happening and, um, and the farm coming back to being more productive than it was before with a lot less input costs, which are the chemical costs. Exactly. A lot. So it's really just this one, it's almost like this flip, like it's the upfront investment. And then like five years down the line, you're probably going to be way better off, but you have to work that into like everything. Yes, I'll complicate the picture for you mm -hmm. yet again, which is once you do that transition, what, where, what seed are you getting to, to do that? Once you're in the organic, let's say you get an, a, 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 the loan from the government that you need to withstand that yeah. time frame. what seed are you putting in there that, um, that you're producing you know, at, at scale? So we're like, so for instance, like Jamie and I at our home garden, we get like Johnny's seeds or Hudson Valley company's seeds. But what I you're saying is, try row seven seeds. I'm gonna try row seven no, seeds. My but point like, is do you scale, not like at bigger scale? You can't get those kind of seeds at scale. Well, you no, you can't get organic seeds. You at can scale. get what you can get are seeds that um, at that at scale. I think you're talking about with your old neighbor. Yeah. Uh, but for most farmers who are really producing food, not gardens. Uh, where are you going to get strong seed? Strong seed that seed that's developed for organic systems. In other words, this goes back to the chemical companies controlling sixty-five percent of our seed supply. 
you're not producing that seed organically. So when I, what do I mean by producing the seed organically? So going back to our example of the two parents yeah. that come together, when they come together and make the baby seed, yeah. uh, are you raising that baby seed to get it to be mature and have a, a, a new life? Are you raising it in an organic environment? Or are you spraying the hell out of it to make sure that it, it, it works, right. that, that this baby develops? There's very little organic production of seeds. So for like row seven. So if you're an organic farmer yeah. in America, most organic farmers are growing chemical seeds. Right. So when people talk about, uh, you can't make it work, like your friend said, we talked about, he's right, you can't make it work because the soil's dead. You can't grow in, productively in dead soil. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's very hard to make work is that you have seed that even if you have semi-rich soil or soil that's in better shape, you have seed that has been raised in an environment that is meant to withstand the pest and disease pressures. Mm. That's organic seed production. No organic seed production. Very little. So... Part of the problem when people say, oh my God, this will never work, the farmers, or customers say, it's so expensive, organic, huh? it's so expensive. The, the issue is that there's no investment on organic seeds. So a farmer goes out there and he or she is growing an organic environment, which means no, no pesticides mm-hmm. and fertilizer and herbicides, but they're using seed that was developed in a chemical environment. So they're hobbled. Right. They don't have the disease resistance the complex that you need to be competitive. Right. My, they're the co-founder of Row 7 Seed Company, Michael Mazurk, always said something so smart, uh, which is, it's not that organic production has a yield gap with conventional. It's not that you know, we are less proficient at producing food. It's that we have an R&D gap. We just don't have the investment that for the last 50 years, the conventional people have put into seed right when you have that kind of r&d you know i was just on a i was on a panel a few years ago with the monsanto executive he said he sends a million dollars a day on corn r&d a A million million a day a day day. oh that's like that's that's mind-blowing the advances right that well who spends a million dollars in a decade on organic seed. Yeah. Nobody. And that's why you don't have the advances that you have in GMO technology or CRISPR technology. All the stuff that's happening are all are all because of technology investments. But nobody invests in technology of organic because it's a biological investment and it's, it's much harder mm-hmm. and um, there's no incentive. What's the incentive? Right. There's very little. So what is Especially the... because organic farmers can grow with chemical seeds. Right. The fact that they're hobbled and you have to pay more money for it, it's, I don't, whose problem? It's not, not one person's problem. It's one of those things where everybody is, that's why you start with seed. If you don't start with seed, you don't fix that problem. What are we really talking about? Yeah. You're not democratizing anything. You're just keeping it expensive. And so what is the goal with row seven? Democratize everything. And how, how will you guys do that? What's the plan? First of all, is produce seed organically. Right. That's number one. It's very expensive. How do you do that? Well, you, you go to, to, first of all, you're working with breeders that are creating new varieties of, in our case, vegetables and grains that are organically 
conceived. Yeah. So that's at the get go. And then when we like when we when we zeroed in on something that we're really excited to select for our, for us, we use um, seed farmers. There's the seed itself, yep. which is developed by you name it. Mm -hmm. Then there's you, the eater, and in between, yeah, there's the seed grower, the person who grows the seed, that then is brought back to the company and then sold to the farmer. Right. Makes sense. It does make sense. So that seed grower uh, needs to be organic. And like, can you guys? Okay, so now we know Monsanto is dumping a million a day into like R and D. Can you guys? How how can you scale this? Is it just like honestly demand? Are you just providing it to Blue Hill? Like you know, like how, and and how how does like you know like I guess is it just like Jamie and I buy row seven seeds for our home garden and that's helping or you know is it I guess like because I like to give people solutions when they listen to these sort of things. Well, like, yeah, right. So so garden is a it, yeah. If you have your own garden, that's a nice place to start. Uh, and uh, you know, row seven is is an option. Uh, we are now selling our vegetables uh, in Whole Foods in 120 stores this summer uh, under the Row 7 brand. Oh, great. And we are rolling across the country with Whole Foods in the next three years. Um, so that's on the, on the produce end. You'll be able to buy these vegetables. At Whole Foods. Uh, organically conceived, organically bred, and organically grown uh, with genetics that have been that have been selected for deliciousness, right? Uh, which is, you know, another criteria that seems to have been ignored uh, in this whole game. And it's one. That's of why you start with seed, because if your intention on the seed is yield uniformity, military-like uniformity, shelf stability, and water weight, which is what most of our vegetables, when you said we produce crap, it's not that we produce crap. We produce, we produce a lot of water, because you sell by weight. So most of all of breeding is about retaining water because that's where the money is. You ever pick up an iceberg lettuce? Iceberg lettuce is 99% water. And it's the number one eaten vegetable in the United States of America. And it's is it? Every number one. Number oh. one. I mean, salad, but it tastes salad like is shit. the number one. Well, yeah. <laughs> iceberg I mean, actually, lettuce. I've never. Like nothing. No, it doesn't taste like anything. Yeah. So that's why you have a lot of salad dressing. Yeah. Okay. So that's like what you're doing basically is like having. Salad becomes a vector for fat, you know. That's not what happens in Italy or in in France, you know, where where salad is appreciated. Just having Jamie come listen, yeah, yeah, yeah. you'll you'll love all of this yeah, chat. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, did so, you if, so are you selecting it for something other than weight, and are you selecting it for other something other than ranch dressing? Okay, which is, which is a cultural shift. That's where you get to the culture, and that's why chefs and restaurants play a role in it. Because how do you change culture? Big Y doesn't change culture. You know, Big Y responds to culture, which is why you get shrink wrap peppers, you know, in April mm -hmm. or May or, you know, whatever, from wherever, because that's the demand. But how do you change culture? And I, I think one way to do it is through deliciousness, because definitely pontification, lecturing about how the world is going, you know, going under is not. Nobody likes not, that. Yeah, yeah, it's not the coat of arms for a winning campaign. <laughs> you know. So I think deliciousness is a good one. Chefs have this this power right now in the culture to affect people's opinion and change the, the table, the white tablecloth or, or any table yeah. has a, has a, really has a power now that it's, it's in some ways it's, it's a, it's, it's ironic, uh, in not a nice way that you know, the only place that we have where we're not interrupted by social media or, or telephones or cable news or whatever 
is the table. Yeah. And even then you're interrupted. But for the most part, we still have, we're still holding on by a thread to this idea that there's a real community around table. There is. There is. And, and that's in other cultures, there's always been that. But in America, there's still that. And that's the, it's like this bastion of like, of, 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 a, of opportunity. Yeah. Uh, which is to communicate an idea. And that's, an, that's actually really not a small thing. Uh, and that's why restaurants could be, can be, and I think are, uh, broadcasting stations for larger ideas uh, in the same way that, you know, the same way that um, uh, going to influential art museums and things that change your mind, your perspective, uh, whatever, you know, that you could do that in many different ways. But restaurants have become have the opportunity to really become that, I think, in, in the subject of food and how we want our food grown. Mm. You could be in the middle of a city and affect how the world is used by what restaurant you're going to and what you're ordering and how you then take those ideas and make them your own in your own home and in your community. That's very, that's powerful. And I think it's funny because I know you've touched upon it and I just want to ask you, like, you know, as kind of, it's, I know it's a huge theme for you is this idea of delicious ingredients but for so many people I don't think they even know what food should taste like you know what I mean it's like we've totally lost it like I know that you've spoken about wheat quite a bit and how you know we've lost the taste of what real wheat is like and Jamie and I actually commented on it as we were coming in here like you could smell the bread and it almost smelled unlike anything I've ever smelt before just just you guys baking bread so how do you how do you kind of introduce to people that maybe like the the vegetables that we eat don't have great taste? I mean, that's like a pretty big like cultural discussion to be having, you know, like especially when you go to dinner parties and people are like, oh, here's my tomato salad. And, you know, you taste it. It doesn't taste like anything. But right. there's kind of no one even knows that's wrong. Right. I guess. Chefs. And, and so that's where I you guys play that, a role. That's why I think we play a role. Yeah. We play the role your grandmothers used to play. <laughs> I mean, weirdly, people listen to us, but you know, not not weirdly in the sense of taste, because we curate those things every, every day, and there's a there's a place for us to talk about hedonism and delight and pleasure that's very um, that's very intoxicating. You know? Yeah, uh, and and like goes back to the question we were talking about at the beginning of this is like, in my case, my food is so simple. I, ha- I that's how I got there. Is I had to have these flavors, otherwise I wasn't going to be successful. I wanted to be successful, and so, you know, you're you're naked on the plate. You better deliver. And yeah. I started with farms because I started to understand farms that had the right rotations and the right soil and the right care, and and so I was, you know, privileging them, and then. I got, I just kept, it was like peeling an onion. You start to go, well, that variety is what I want. And then you start thinking, you start learning, you start expecting that variety. Well, what is that variety? And that's how you get quickly to seed. Right. Uh, it's, you're drilling down. And it's know? all like coming back. Yeah. I love that. Well, my final question for you, Dan, because it's a sustainable yeah, podcast, I want to touch upon it quickly, is I first learned about you with the wasted pop-up in London. Oh, were you guys there? I We couldn't get in, no. but my friends Kay and Tom went, and they are not even really foodies, but they were blown away by it. And oh, wow. I would love for you just waste in the restaurant industry, waste at home, food waste. It's something that is so uniquely American in terms of just how much we get rid of. We have huge refrigerator. I've noticed it since coming back to America. I mean, not like London's not great for it anyway, but America's a very uniquely wasteful place. And I'd, 
I just love for you to touch upon a little bit about like what your experience were seeing waste and why you wanted to address it and how you addressed it. I think part of the answer to the problem of Americans and waste goes back to the beginning of us, this lovely conversation, which we unfortunately have to end, uh, which is about how agriculture started in this country, which was which was uh, based on a lot of fertility and based on a lot of richness and mm-hmm. high on the hog eating that imprinted our food culture. Uh, you know, in, 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 when you didn't have to make the kind of negotiations that we talked about peasants making all over the world for thousands and thousands of years, uh, you don't tend to look at, uh, at, at your dinner plate or at the wholeness of a field in the same way, you just or pasture. It's just it's not. You don't have to. You're not mm. forced to. Right. So that has been our legacy of a of a culture that came into it very rich, and we're very young. It wasn't that long ago that we were marching across the country. As I said, it sort of ended in the '60s in California, and here we are. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we're waking up to the idea, like, wow, we waste forty percent of what we produce. Well, that wasn't a problem because it wasn't a problem. <laughs> so I, like my, my interest in waste wasn't about the ugly fruits and vegetables that we waste in the, in the supermarket or in the, in, you know, that people you know, bruise on a, on, a, on a pepper and they don't buy it. Although, although that tugs at our heartstrings, it's, it's bupkis compared to what we, what, what's really going on in the food system, which is, which is monocultures, as we talked about, mm-hmm. that are feeding animals, feeding beef. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the biggest single waste. You, the fact that we have 190 million acres of corn and soybeans feeding an animal that we then eat is the most inefficient creation of a food system ever created by leaps and bounds. 190 million acres of some of the most fertile ground in the world is devoted to an animal that we then get the nutrition off of, and it's not great nutrition. So that's a, that's a crime. And, that's and we're not where, using the whole animal and either. We're forgetting about all that. We're not using the whole <laughs> animal, and nobody's making money except for a few companies that are controlling those interests. So, you know that that's the issue, and that's what I was when I did was the waste that I was like. That's what I was trying to talk about. Is like we have a a, a pattern of eating and an expectation of a protein centric plate of food that is enormously wasteful. Forgetting about the fact that it's environmentally unsound and unsustainable, forgetting the fact that it's unhealthy, mm. forgetting the fact that it's not that delicious, it's also like incredibly wasteful. And that's the thing we need to, to turn on its head. We need to do what most cuisines have done for thousands of years, which is negotiate a landscape in the carrying capacity landscape, which is you, you eat very different depending on where you're located. And meat, you know, if you're in some parts of the world, meat's big and and should be, but in, in at some parts of the world. But in most parts of the world, meat is a smattering, uh, you know, a flavor and a protein. And grains really take center stage, and they don't get fed to animals. They get fed to humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, grass gets fed to animals because grass, as we are seeing here, is fed by the sun. Sun feeds the grass. Grass feeds the animal. Animal feeds us. You don't get more sustainable or free lunch than that. You know? <laughs> That's it. So and yet I, we've messed it up somehow. We we, we have like really uh, turn that thing, that God gift, into something that's so perverted and, and so utterly wasteful. Um, I would argue that it starts with seed, again, because that corn and soybean, we are able to turn 198 million acres in the corn and soybeans because of seed. Right. And without that, the, the animal, the, the cow, in the case that we're talking about, 
doesn't get finished on that stuff. Um, yeah. They get finished on the grass like we used to. Um, and, and we would just eat less meat. And we would value, as you would say, you would really democratize the carcass because you have to. Now you don't have to. There's so much meat, so overflowing with meat to the point that hamburger meat is cents, you know, and, no, and farmers lose so much money on ground meat because it's just commoditized that it means nothing and steaks are the slim card or you make a little bit of money if you're in the business, whether you're a chef or you're a meat processor. Um, so it's a, it's a rigged game, and I, but the, the waste subject to me is it's just unfortunate that it gets, it gets focused on something as really as inconsequential and silly as you didn't, you're not eating your leftovers. You know, um, although that's not nothing, maybe it's a place to start. I'm a little bit more concerned about the larger issue, which is how we eat every day. Yeah. Those food, those decisions uh, are not just about our health and our environmental health, but about just wastefulness, period. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Dan. This well, has been very, very informal. Questions. You know, it's rare to find someone who does the reading and uh, knows these issues. So thank you. 